rather than have a Good Friday service at Emmanuel, we've chosen to celebrate Palm Sunday two weeks prior to the Resurrection Day and then have one Sunday that we focus on the cross in between. Uh, as you know, those of you who've been here for a while, we actually go through the whole life of Jesus in our worship services every year. And um, of course, after we focus on his death and then his resurrection, we focus on his giving of the Spirit and the ascension, his second coming. And then we, in the summertime, shift into the doctrines of grace and the attributes of God. And then we start to gear back up for the first advent of Jesus again in uh, Christmas. And uh, so that we sort of follow a, a church year, you might say, on steroids here. Uh, and uh, but we've, we've done it for years, and part of the goal in that is that, especially for children that grow up in the church, they will have heard the entire story of Jesus in the worship every single year as they grow up. We will, as adults, have been reminded of the entire story of our Lord Jesus and what he's done for us, all the significant events of his life from his birth to the time he was 12 in the temple to the cleansing of the temple and his baptism and all these other things, the transfiguration, some of his miracles. So uh, we try to keep everything Christ-centered this way. It's all about him. Uh, salvation is, I was just having a discussion with uh, someone online last night who had the radical notion that when Paul said that we were chosen before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless without, uh, before, before him, before God in love, uh, that that had nothing to do with being chosen for salvation. And uh, that was a novel view. I've never heard that before. Um, and uh, one of the things, and he, and he was really putting a lot of weight on this phrase in him and badly misunderstanding it. And one of the discussions I had to have with him was that if you look at how Paul speaks of being in him or in Christ throughout the New Testament, what you, what you quickly discover is that salvation is all about union with Christ. In fact, if there's one overarching concept in the New Testament concerning salvation, it's union with Christ. It's the umbrella under which everything else about our salvation uh, is subsumed, right? It, and so it's sort of the overarching principle. And uh, we are identified with Christ as our Savior, as our representative in all that he did for us in his sinless life on our behalf and in his death on the cross on our behalf, in his resurrection. And so union with Christ is at the center of everything. He stood in our place and because we're united to him, what he has become to ours. He took our sin upon himself, and we get his righteousness reckoned as our own. And that's really what the, this text is about that we're going to be looking at this morning. Uh, I'll read the uh, <clears throat> passage, and then we'll get into unpacking it verse by verse. Remember, uh, we looked at a little bit at Galatians last week, and that's one of the reasons I thought that this would be a good passage. Galatians was in my head uh, a lot the past couple of weeks. And remember that there were these Judaizers that we talked about last week. They're, they're professing believers who were Jews who really didn't understand the gospel. 
and who thought that the Gentiles had to be circumcised in order to be saved. They had to become Jews in order to be saved, which meant that they themselves were putting on circumcision far too much weight. They were holding to a kind of works salvation um, that undermined the gospel of grace. And of course, Paul begins in Galatians, uh, he talks about, in fact, he calls them at the beginning of this chapter, chapter 3, of foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth. Um, it's not often that you read Paul calling a group of professing believers foolish. But he called the Galatians foolish. Uh, and Because they were beginning to take seriously this notion that somehow there's something you have to do in order to be saved. It was undermining the gospel of grace. So that's the context here for what Paul is talking about. Circumcision, of course, is a work of the law. It's something demanded by the law. And so if you're going to say one thing in the law is demanded to be saved, Paul's going to quickly remind you, well, if you're going to go that route, you're going to have to keep it all. And so that's what we have to have in our minds as we read, beginning in verse 10. Paul says, for as many are as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. Now justified there means no, that no one is uh, found to be righteous, declared to be righteous by God. Uh, right? They don't, come to be seen and declared as righteous by God, right? By the law, by keeping the law. And he says, but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident for the just shall live by them, or by faith rather. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree that the blessing of Abraham might be upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And of course, the blessing of Abraham that he's talking about there is justification by faith. Galatians, or excuse me, Genesis 15, 6, he believed God and it was reckoned to him as faith, right? That's in the mind of Paul when he says that. And so this, that's what this passage is really about, Right? It's about salvation. It's about the gospel. It's about how we're really seen and declared to be righteous by God. Paul's saying it's not by the works of the law. It's by faith. Faith in Christ. Who became a curse for us. So that's what the passage is about. Let's pray and then we'll try to dig into it a little more deeply. Holy Father, I do thank you so much for your great love for us. I thank you that... You sent your son Jesus who existed as God, the pre-incarnate Jesus. He became man. He took on human flesh. And as one who is both fully God and fully man in one person, in such a way that his deity neither detracted from or added to his humanity, and his humanity neither detracted from or added to his deity, but somehow he was fully both in one person. And as such, he lived a perfectly righteous life. He fulfilled the law on our behalf. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. 
And then he died on the cross by your grace, Father, as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. He bore the wrath for our sins. He died in our place. And then he rose from the dead on our behalf and conquered death on our behalf. And he ascended to your right hand where he ever lives to intercede for everyone who believes in him. What a wonderful gospel message, Lord. Thank you for giving us your son. It is our prayer that we'll, we will come to appreciate more deeply as a result of this passage this morning just what our Lord Jesus has done for us. Help us, I pray, to hear what it is you have to say to us in this text, to take it to heart, to become more like Christ as a result, to better glorify you as a result. We ask all these things in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat> Long ago, in a country far, far away, uh, uh, as the people were preparing to enter the land of Canaan, the prophet Moses set before them a very clear choice, and he challenged them to make the right choice. He said, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life. Now this morning, we're going to see that Paul takes a remarkably similar approach with the Galatians. He sets before them a curse and a blessing, life and death, and he calls upon them to choose life, right? That's essentially what he's doing in this passage. The curse brings with it condemnation and death, whereas the blessing brings with it justification and life. And this is what Paul is going to demonstrate from Scripture. In fact, he cites a Scripture passage in each of the next four verses here. He is demonstrating to them that what he's saying comes from the Scriptures. You know, these Judaizers were coming along, and they were throwing the Old Testament at these people, but they were distorting it. So Paul is using, he's showing them the gospel in the Old Testament, if you will. And he's applying it to them and showing them how Christ is at the center of everything. He begins in verse 10 by saying, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Now, here Paul is citing a passage from the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 27, beginning in verse 26, and then going into the beginning of uh, Deuteronomy 28. And this is one of those instances where chapter and verse divisions don't do the best justice to the text, in my opinion. But uh, here's what uh, the law says in Deuteronomy 27, 26. Cursed is the one who does not confirm all the words of this law by observing them. Now notice if you have the New King James word, uh, version there, uh, it says, cursed is the one who does not confirm all. The word all is in italics. They've added the word there. And they've done it because in the following verse, it's clear that it means all the, the works of the law. All the words of the law have to be observed. And, and we know that Paul thinks that that's the right way to understand it. In fact, that's the way the trans 
the Septuagint, the, the, the Greek translation had it, and that's what Paul quotes in verse 10 here. He, he's affirming that this is the right way to understand this verse, that it means, and in the context it's clear that it means, uh, that the one who is cursed is the one who does not confirm all the words of this law by observing them, and all the people shall say, Amen. That, that's their response when they hear that. That's what they're supposed to, they're supposed to agree with that. That it's true. Now it shall come to pass, he goes on to say, if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments. See, the, the Septuagint translators and Paul uh, in the New King James Version have imported that all into the previous verse for clarification, because that's what it was talking about, and it's been clarified here, right? This is very important, because uh, a lot of what Paul says hangs on that. It's not that you can keep most of the law. If somebody could keep every single law but one, they'd still be cursed. That's the point. To, to have life and to have the blessing of salvation, you have to, if you want to do it by the law, you better do it perfectly. The only problem, or one of the big problems with that, <laughs> the main problem is no one can do it, but another problem is by the time people come to the realization or the thought that they ought to do that, they've already blown it. <laughs> There's nobody that's ever come to say, to read this text when they're at an age to understand it, that reads it and says, oh, I can do that. No, they look back at their past life and say, I'm already doomed. I've already blown it. Right? It's a terrible thing uh, to think that you have to keep the law in order to be saved because you can't do it. Nobody can. By the time they learn that they might have to, they've already blown it. They're already doomed. Paul's trying to save the Galatians for this, from this kind of thinking. It shall come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments which I command you today that the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. Paul's point in citing this passage is clear. The law pronounces a curse on all those who do not perfectly keep all of it. So, since those who have the works of the law as he says in the first part of the verse, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, since those who are of the works of the law and seek to obtain life as a reward for keeping the law cannot keep it as they desire to do, then they're all under the curse. This is what he's trying to drive home to the Galatians. What the Judaizers are offering you is the curse. They're offering you a way of death, condemnation. They're giving you the road to hell, is what they're doing, right? They're demanding of you something they can't do either. No one can. Everybody who thinks he can is under the curse. The obvious assumption Paul's making here is that the reason that everyone who tries to achieve Salvation by works of the law is under the curse is that no one can keep it. The argument doesn't work unless you assume that no one can keep it. It's impossible. And so, we find this assumption that's going to operate for us throughout the, this passage, and it's going to be key. 
that no one can keep the law. He'll only receive a curse. He won't be justified by keeping the law. He'll only receive a curse. But what is the curse that he's talking about? Well, the Hebrew term in Deuteronomy indicates being rejected by God and receiving the opposite of God's blessings. Right? To be cursed by God is to receive the opposite of his blessings. Well, what are his blessings? Well, they include things like forgiveness of sin, salvation from sin, redemption, right? Eternal life. So what's the opposite of that? Eternal condemnation. Of course, Jesus reveals in the New Testament hell is the ultimate end of such people. But in the passage before, since the blessing includes justification and life, then the curse must certainly include condemnation and death. It's the opposite of what the blessing would be. It's worth noting that Paul clearly sees this concept of the curse as part of explaining the gospel message. He thinks it's very important for people to understand their predicament correctly, or they're not going to understand the solution to that predicament correctly. If they don't understand that they're such sinners that they could never do as God demands, they'll never be at a point where they realize that they can only be saved by grace. In fact, he'll go on to describe law as a tutor that leads us to Christ in this way. Jesus put it this way when he preached the gospel. For God so loved the world. Now, this could be the Apostle John's words at this point, but he got all these ideas from Jesus, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but, through, but that the world through him rather might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. He who does not believe is condemned already. As I was saying before, when you look into the law and what it says, you have to keep it on, you have to keep it perfectly. What do you realize when you come to it? When you're able to read that and understand what it says, you realize you're, all, you're already condemned. The law was supposed to show the Jewish people that important fact. So that when Jesus came, they would realize they're already condemned and they, only, they can only be saved through him. That's the point. Jesus assumed that this condemnation was already here. And Paul is telling us the law, one of the big purposes of it, was to make that clear to us that we are condemned apart from God's grace. But you can see that Jesus didn't have to make his primary focus the, pron the pronunciation of condemnation upon sinners then because the law had already done this. Instead, Jesus made it his primary focus to show that because we are condemned sinners, we need to trust in him for salvation. Now, to be sure, Jesus did talk a great deal about sin. But he always did so that we might turn to him and find everlasting life. So it's important then to understand, as Jesus and Paul did, that the purpose of the law is to show us our sin and condemn it for what it is, so that we might see our need for salvation. That is what's in Paul's mind here. And it's important to keep that in mind when we read the next verse, where he quotes another passage from the Old Testament. But that no one is justified, again, declared righteous in the eyes of God, 
by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Now here Paul reinforces his argument with a citation from Habakkuk, which he clearly takes as an expression of justification by faith, as he's been teaching it. It says this in Habakkuk 2.4, Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. The implication there is that a righteous person is, is a person who trusts in the Lord in humility. He's not proud. <laughs> He's humble. And he realizes his need for God. He realizes his need for God's grace and he trusts in the Lord. And he lives by faith then in God and not in himself as a proud man would do. If we cannot receive life from God except by faith, and justification is necessary to our receiving life from God, then we cannot be justified except by faith. This justification of life come only through a personal relationship of trust in the Lord to save us rather than entrusting ourselves. The proud do that. But they don't live. This emphasis upon a personal relationship is what Jesus had in mind when he prayed as he did the night before he gave his life for our sins, as we praised him for this morning. In John 17, 1 through 3, we read that Jesus spoke these words. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you. There he doesn't mean just know about you. right? He's talking about a relationship with the Father, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. As John Stott perceptibly observes in his con com comments, his, con his uh, is it, what's it called? The com commentary. It is, my brain isn't functioning very well these days. He, he says this, justification means to be in favor with God. Eternal life means to be in fellowship with God. And the two are closely, indeed indissolubly, related. We cannot be in fellowship with God until we are in favor with him. And once we are in favor with him, fellowship with him is granted to us too. I think that captures well the implications of Paul's teaching here. But Paul isn't done making his case yet. He's building a case here. He's stringing together scripture passages to demonstrate that the people who are coming with these Old Testament verses about circumcision and stuff and trying to demand things of the Gentiles are misunderstanding their Bible. And he wants to get his point across as plainly as possible so that there can't be any doubt about the truth of what he's saying. So he continues with yet another appeal to scripture in verse 12. Yet the law is not of faith, but, or on the contrary, the man who does them shall live by faith. Now here Paul is citing from the book of Leviticus, Leviticus 18.5, which says, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. That's a big if there, which if a man does. Now, it's very important not to mistake the reason Paul's citing this verse, which at first seems to be the opposite 
of what the passage was saying that he just cited in Habakkuk. We said the just shall live by faith. Now that's saying that people live by keeping the law, it seems. Paul's just cited a text that says life comes by faith, and now this seems to be saying something different. It comes by the law. In fact, it seems to go against the whole case he's been making here at first glance. What's this verse doing here? <laughs> right? Why cite this verse? Well, we know from the context in which he's citing it that we can't take it the way it seems to first appear to us, right? It must not really be contradictory to what he's been saying all along. But then we have to ask, why doesn't Paul see it as contradictory? How is it that the citation of Leviticus 18.5 actually helps him to make his case? He clearly believes that it does, even though at first it seems like it's out of place. Well, I think the answer to this apparent dilemma lies in remembering that Paul's already made a very important assumption in verse 10, and I stressed it repeatedly for this reason, <laughs> that no one can, in fact, keep the law which is why he says that as many as of the works of the law are under the curse. Now he's reminding the Galatians and the Judaizers who are trying to get them to believe in justification by works that the law itself demands that if a man wants to find life through keeping the law, he must really do it. He can't just want to keep the law. He can't just intend to keep the law or hope to keep the law or deceive himself into thinking he's kept the law when he hasn't. No, none of that will do. He must actually keep the law. And as Paul's already made clear in verse 10, he must actually keep all of the law. If he can do that, if he can keep the law perfectly, then he will indeed obtain life thereby. Um, that doesn't mean that he has to keep it, though, from the point he first reads this for the rest of his life, he will have had to have kept it perfectly up to that point. It's got to cover the whole life, remember. But the truth is that he cannot do it. No one can. So when he says this, it's his way of making the case even stronger. Well, the law says this, and I've already made it clear you can't do it, as we used to say when I was a kid, you're hosed. <laughs> right? Well, of course, there, there is one exception to the no one can do it. And that's our Lord Jesus. He did do it. But that's one of the important reasons he took on human flesh and was born under the law. He did perfectly keep it. And when he got old enough to read and understand the passages we're looking at, he could look back on his life and say, yeah, I've done it perfectly. And he could go on with the rest of his life doing it perfectly, keeping the law perfectly. He did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He kept the law. He did it for us. He did it in our place. 
His righteousness was perfect. And this is why we must look to him. And this is why Paul focuses his attention on him in the next verse. Verse 13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. There's his appeal to scripture again. He's, a cite, he's citing another text from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 21, 22 to 23. It says this, If a man has committed a sin deserving of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day, so you do not defile the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. For he who is hanged, and in the context, on a tree, it said it twice, on a tree, right? In the preceding context. For he who is hanged on a tree is cursed of God. Now, the point of this passage is not that a man is cursed because he was hanged on a tree, right? But rather that his having been hanged on a tree demonstrates that he's cursed. Now, some may want to protest that Jesus was not actually hanged on a living tree. It wasn't like hang him high where they threw a rope over a limb and, or something like that, right? Rather, he was put on a wooden cross. But for God and the Jews, it amounted to the same thing. In fact, this is why the apostles often referred to Jesus' manner of death as having been hanged on a tree. You get the impression as you read some of the, the text in the New Testament, this, this was kind of a favorite way of talking about the crucifixion. Because it brought to mind, especially for Jews and uh, proselytes and God-fearers who knew the Old Testament, this important text about a person being cursed if they're hung on a tree, which should remind every believer of what Paul's saying in this passage about our Lord Jesus. But I'll give you some examples of how, and you've got all the scriptures, I believe, in your notes there, how this regularly was referred to, the cross, as being hanged on a tree. It's because, obviously, it's made of wood from a tree, right? When the, the apostles were defending themselves before the Sanhedrin, we read in Acts 5.30 that they said this, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. When Peter was preaching to the household of Cornelius, in Acts 10.39 we read his assessment of that, his defense of it, that we are witnesses of all the things which he, Jesus, did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. He could have just said, whom they killed by hanging on the cross, but everybody knew he was talking about the cross. Why did he put it this way, hanging on a tree? Well, if you know your Old Testament, you know why he said this. When Paul was preaching in Antioch of Pisidia, which, by the way, was a Galatian city, and he's writing to the Galatians here, <laughs> which means... He's preached this way already to them about Jesus being hanged on a tree and what it means. So what we're reading here would be a reminder of this important fact. But here's what it says in Acts 13, 26-30. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. 
for those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. Of course, talking about Jesus. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree. There you have it again. He was hanged on a tree and laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. So there. In 1 Peter, to see that Peter used the same language as Paul, and we already saw that he is one of the apostles defended themselves with this language to the Sanhedrin. He says in 1 Peter 2, 22-24, he says, who, Jesus, committed no sin. Remember, he kept the law perfectly. Nor was deceit found in his mouth. For when he was reviled, did not revile and return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins, in his own body, on the tree. That we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by, by whose stripes you were healed. And of course, then he, there he's alluding to the passage in Isaiah 52 and 53 that was read earlier by our brother Ken. This understanding of Jesus as having been hanged on a tree and therefore as having been cursed was no doubt one reason why the Jews had such a hard time accepting him as their Messiah. But thankfully, there were those who, by God's grace, began to understand that he was cursed for them so that they wouldn't have to be. As Paul is saying in this passage here in Galatians 3, he became a curse for them, however, and for us, not because he himself was guilty of anything, as both Paul and Peter were sure to point out, but rather because he took our sins upon himself. Paul put it this way in his second epistle to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In this happy exchange, as Luther liked to call it, Jesus has our sin reckoned to him, and we get his righteousness reckoned to us. And this is the basis for our justification in God's sight. He became a curse for us. He became sin for us. The punishment for our sins was put on him. Our sins were reckoned to him as the sacrifice for our sins. He bore the wrath of God for those sins. He took our sins and through faith in him, his righteousness gets credited to us. In this happy exchange. And when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ and says what? Innocent, not guilty, righteous. He declares us to be righteous. That's what justification is about as Paul teaches it, and that's what he's assuming when he says what he says here about justification. This is the basis for the double blessing of justification and eternal life that Paul is talking about in this passage. 
but it is also the basis for our reception of yet another magnificent promise, the promise of the Holy Spirit, as Paul goes on to make clear in verse 14. He says that, or in order that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus. The blessing of Abraham, of course, is the salvation that's going to be brought to the Gentiles through the seed of Abraham, remember? Going back to passages like Genesis 12, Genesis 15, and particularly Genesis 15, 6 that I had cited earlier. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. And when we become Abraham's children by faith, Paul will argue in this letter as well, when we, by faith, are declared righteous by God as well. We're following in the steps of our spiritual father, Abraham, when we do that. And so the blessing of Abraham that he's talking about has to do with justification by faith in the context. He says, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now here, Paul's hearkening back to the previous context, and I touched on it a little bit earlier. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 3, when he said, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you was crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith? He's wanting them to go back and think about when they were saved, and they experienced the Holy Spirit coming into their life through regeneration. And they were turned away from sin and trusted in Christ as their Savior. Did that happen by keeping the law, by the hearing of faith, he said, by trusting? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now going to be made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain? Because they had indeed suffered for their faith. He says, if indeed it was in vain, he's holding out hope that it wasn't here, right? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law, by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Genesis 15, 6. These uh, Judaizers are pretending to be the real children of Abraham. And Paul's saying, uh-uh. Nope. And he brings his argument full circle, having demonstrated from Scripture that this was always God's intention for them, justification by faith. That was the blessing of Abraham. The law came along, right, to show them that they needed to trust in God in order to be saved because they couldn't be righteous in and of themselves. That was the point of the law, or one of the many main points of the law, right? to show them their sin, to show them they stood condemned, to show them that if they're going to be saved, the only way it's going to be happen, happen for them is to learn what Abraham learned. You've got to trust wholly in the Lord and in his grace if you're going to be righteous. And you're going to be, have to be declared righteous by him. Righteousness is somehow going to have to be reckoned to you by him. Or you're doomed. And so they've completely distorted the purpose of the law. And Paul will go on to have a really wonderful passage about the function of the law in this, in this letter. But uh, he's brought this argument full circle. If God intended them to have the blessing of Abraham, including justification and eternal life, then he also intended for them to have the promised Holy Spirit 
who's the one who brings these blessings to them. And they don't get that by works. And they know it, deep down they know it, because they can look back on their salvation and realize it. You see, if we do not have Christ, we don't have the Holy Spirit. If we don't have the Holy Spirit, we don't have Christ. This is a crucial fact that Paul assumes here, but discusses more explicitly elsewhere. Just one example would be Romans 8, 9. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. This, the ultimate blessing of Abraham, right? Because it's through the Spirit that all the other blessings come to us. I'd like to conclude with another quote from John Stott, who aptly summarizes the emphasis of this passage. <clears throat> the challenge of this passage is straightforward. We must renounce the proud folly of supposing that we can establish our own righteousness or make ourselves acceptable to God. Amen to that. Instead, we must come humbly to the cross where Christ bore our curse and cast ourselves upon his mercy. And then, by God's sheer grace, because we are in Christ Jesus by faith, we shall receive justification, eternal life, in the indwelling Holy Spirit. The blessing of Abraham will be ours. That's a good summary of this passage, I think, what it's all about. And I hope it's been impressed on all of our hearts this morning. Let's take a moment to pray. Holy Father, I do thank you so much for your love for us. I thank you for uh, this passage and the, and the way that it teaches us to understand these key Old Testament verses. I thank you, Lord, for the vision it gives us of your, your plan that started way back in the Garden of Eden when you promised a seed to come that would one day save us. And we see that promise ultimately fulfilled in Christ. We're reminded of it in your promises to Abraham. And now we have the blessing of Abraham. The same justification that he experienced. The benefits of Christ's death were retroactively applied to him. But we know about them now. We get to know all this. All the stuff he didn't know. We get to see how you did for Abraham what you did for him. That you were only pointing to in his day types and shadows. But we've seen the fulfillment in Christ. We live in such a wonderful period as new covenant believers. But too much is given, much is required. We have given much, we've been given much truth, Lord. Help us to embrace it fully. Help us to stand for the gospel. Help us not to become foolish, ever thinking that having begun in the Spirit, somehow we can go on in the flesh. It denies the very gospel by which we were saved to think that way. Forgive us when we start down that path in our minds. Help us to remember we need the gospel every day. Every day we need to remember 
We're saved by grace through faith alone, in Christ alone, for your glory alone. Help us never to forget that, I pray. If for anyone here has not yet come to know Christ, I pray that he or she will recognize they're already condemned. It's not like if they from here on out fail, they'll be condemned. No, they're already condemned. Their only hope is Jesus. Their only hope is the one who died in their place on the cross, who rose from the dead for them. I pray, Lord, that he or she will trust in Jesus, trust in him alone to save them. And if they do so, I pray that they come to another believer in this room and ask for help to grow. And so that we might rejoice with them in their newfound faith. We'll give you all the glory for what you do as a result of this teaching of this word today in our lives because you alone deserve all the glory. We ask these things in the name of our Jesus, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. As always, I thank you so much for your kind attention. You're such good hearers of the word. You really are.